What do you believe? It's a big question. I've become skeptical or even suspicious of people that can answer that too quickly or too succinctly. What do you believe deserves some thought, some time, some study, some prayer, some space? I can remember her so well the young girl and then teenager and then young adult that could spout the answer to what she believed without even a second thought. I remember her. I love her. I don't know where she went because <laughs> she can no longer do that so succinctly as she once could. I remember her and her sword drills. Do y'all even know what I'm talking about with sword drills? I see some older heads nodding, yeah? Mm-hmm. Here's how they went. Attention, shoulders back, hand down by the side of the Bible, draw swords. You had to put your thumbs on the binding and your fingers couldn't cross over to the other side. Everybody had the exact same Bible so that you couldn't cheat. I mean, come on, children cheating in church? That would never happen. So attention, draw swords. Then a verse is spoken slowly, clearly, plainly, twice before the final command, charge. And with charge, you flipped your Bible over and you frantically began searching for the verse that had just been called out. And when you found the verse, you located it with your index finger and you proudly stepped out in front. And if you were the first one to step out in front, the judge would come and check that you had the right verse. And if you had the right verse, you got to read it out loud. Upon reading the verse, you would step back in line with the other losers and get your, get your attention ready again. Oh, sword drills. Your local church had sword drills. Your area district and associations had sword drills. Each church would send their best contestant to the sword drill to represent. It was a big deal, and I can honestly feel that rush of adrenaline pouring through me as I can remember that contest of finding the Bible verse. And of course, they never called out easy verses like Genesis 1-1, Genesis 1-1, charge. That never happened. Or Psalm 23, everybody knew where Psalm 23 was. Or John 3-16, of course we knew where John 3-16 was. They were too easy to find because everyone knew those verses and inevitably they would call out something like Ezekiel or Habakkuk or that little epistle like Philemon that was almost impossible to locate because it's just one chapter long. And you were so desperate to win because that's what Bible knowledge is all about, isn't it? Winning and beating out everyone else and finding one verse of Scripture to read out loud with no context. I just want to stop and say, so far the best thing about a few people being in the room is hearing your laughter, because these guys never laugh at what I say. <laughs> oh, the irony of the sword drill. I'm afraid the level of biblical illiteracy 
illiteracy is so prevalent today that sword drills would be a disaster in anybody's church today. Then how does it happen that even the most biblically illiterate among us can most likely quote John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That one I still quote in King James English. It's so deep within me. Was it the rainbow wig guy at all the sporting events that made it catch on? Was it Tim Tebow with the black strips under his eyes, John 316, and the camera would zoom in on him? Is it the countless bumper stickers with that one name, two numbers divided by a colon, that made it rise to such prominence. No, all of those things took place because John 3.16 had already hit the big time. They were capitalizing on a quick trip to salvation. John 3.16 is all you need. Of all the verses in the whole Bible, how has this one become so prominent? Some even call John 3.16 the gospel in a nutshell. I'm kind of struck by that, and frankly, it gives me pause. Really? That's it? That quick, that short, that concise, something so big can be offered in a nutshell? This whole Lenten season, we've been focusing on redeeming Lenten disciplines. We started with repentance, and then we moved to denial, and then last week, we made our way to activism, and today, in this fourth Sunday in Lent, we're going to try and redeem the word belief, that whosoever believeth in him. But I will confess that it's hard to redeem what has been done with John 3.16. Sword drills and bumper sticker theology is never enough. John 3.16 has been used over and over again as a message of exclusion. I think it has something to do with humanity's inclination to persecute and dominate and oppress the other. And Christians, though we've been, though we've been instructed by Jesus to the contrary, are not immune from this propensity for marginalizing. It's another reminder of how often Christians do more harm to the community of faith than good. John 3.16 comes at the end of the story about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Jewish leader who came to Jesus under the cloak of night to ask some questions about who Jesus is and how he's doing the things he's doing. And Jesus talks to Nicodemus, this Jewish leader, about new life, a new birth, being born from above, which you may have heard many evangelical Christians talk about as being born again. Ooh, that makes me shiver and cringe. Just to hear that language. Because I hear it now as a word of exclusion, not a word of inclusion. Have you been born again, sister? It's a word that has become about who's in and who's out. Well, this metaphor about being born anew, being born from above, 
went right over the literal head of Nicodemus. And Jesus had to spell it out for him. I can just picture that Jesus wanted to grab Nicodemus by the shoulders and just shake him. Come on, man. Think past a literal birth because Nicodemus had just said to him, well, now, how would it be possible for me to re-enter my mother's womb? Come on, Nicodemus, be creative with me. Think poetry, not prose. People are discovering a new way to see and a new way to be and a new way to interact and a new way to navigate the world. People are sensing something fresh and new within them and among them. I'm offering a different message, Nicodemus, a message of liberation and freedom and reconciliation and mercy and amazing, abounding, abundant love. And it's changing people, Nicodemus. It's like they're being born all over again, except this time from above, being born of God because God is love, and love changes everything. And so for many years, evangelicals have conflated Nicodemus being born again and for God so loved the world and attached an element of exclusion and judgment on all those who are not born again to perish forever. And I'm just not so sure that was the gospel writer's intent. And I'm very confident it was not Jesus' intent because it just doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? Now, scholars can't decide if these next words, the John 3.16 and following, are out of the mouth of Jesus, or was this some sermonizing on the part of the gospel writer known as the evangelist? But what is said next in the chapter is found on bumper stickers everywhere. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I fear that most folks have gotten attached to two ideas found in the rest of the sentence, above and beyond the rest of the verse. Perish, well, who wants to perish? And eternal life, well, who doesn't want that? In other words, if you don't want to perish and you do want to have eternal life, then you better believe. There's our Lenten word that needs some redemption. I was helped by New Testament scholar Gail O'Day in understanding that particular very present moment of this John 3.16 text. It was never meant to be used as bumper sticker theology because sword drills and bumper sticker theology are never enough and will always fall short and never say enough for anyone to truly believe in it. Belief takes way more than a bumper sticker. Rather, O'Day reminded me that there is no middle ground in John's vision. God's gift of Jesus, if one believes, then one's present is altered by the gift of eternal life. Not a cosmic future, but this eternal life is underway in this present moment. How can so many Christians not understand that? 
They use John 3.16 to condemn when clearly Jesus did not come to condemn but to save. Belief is huge for the gospel writer that is called John. He was saying in this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus and in the sermonizing that followed that because of God's great and extensive, expansive love of everyone, everywhere, that everyone that knew who they were and to whom they belonged, everyone who believed, well, they were with God in the here and now and in every single here and now to come. So just imagine how lost it must feel to not know that kind of belonging. To not know that kind of belonging makes you feel as though you are perishing right here, right now. I think because John 3.16 became more of a bumper sticker theology, it became coerced into an exclusionary nutshell text. If you don't believe, you're going to die and burn forever. John 3.16. Except that's not what it says at all. John 3.16 is an affirmation of faith. The abundant goodness of belonging to God and knowing it. The world belongs to God, and some don't know it. What a gift it is to know it and claim it and live it and believe it. The evangelist just so desperately wants people to believe. John is kind of famous for telling his readers, I'm telling you these things, some of them before they even occur, so that when they occur, you will believe. He was desperate just like we all can be about anything we love and are passionate about. A new recipe, you've got to try this. A new series to binge on Netflix, you've just got to watch this. It'll only take you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you have got to watch this. Or maybe yoga has made you not just more flexible, but more healthy. Everyone assume the position. Or maybe meditation has saved you from going under. When something changes your life, the way you think, the way you act, the way you feel, for the better, well then you want everyone to get on board and practice it and follow it and believe it for themselves. Now replace yes, recipes and yoga and Netflix with the presence of Jesus and just imagine how the gospel writer was desperate for everyone to believe this. I guess as a pastor, I can understand John here. I too want people to believe. And my desire is not driven out of some fear of people perishing. It's just when you have good news and experience a God that is love and you follow a man who embodied a message of liberation and freedom and reconciliation and mercy and amazing, abounding, abundant love, well, you just kind of want other people to believe it too. Because I believe, 
the love of God and the way of Jesus are so compelling and so transformative that I want all of you to believe it as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right here, right now, you, 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 you. So what do you believe? I came across a letter that I wrote some years ago. I was searching my computer files for John 3.16 to see what I had said about it in the past 20 years. And I found it in a letter I had written to someone. Interestingly, I don't know who the letter is to. It doesn't have a name included in it, and I don't remember writing it. <laughs> but it is clear from the tone in my letter that I am defending my beliefs. I don't know what I had been accused of or who had questioned me. Maybe it was a, an anonymous letter, and I just wrote out of my own need to get it out of my system. I really don't remember. But I was really forthright in defending my beliefs. Here's what I said then. I stand by it now. Marcus Borg says that Jesus was the one who lived among us as a God-intoxicated Galilean peasant healer, wisdom teacher, and social prophet who not only lives, but is Lord. Borg's words here really resonate with me. I would say Jesus is my way, my only way. The Jesus, is, the Jesus way is the only way I know and the only way I can preach. I have given my life to him. I believe he changes lives in profound ways. He certainly has mine. I am not willing to go so far as to say he's the only way. I'm not worried about people that don't claim Jesus as their way. I have never in my whole life been more committed than I am this day to the Jesus way. It has so much to do with all of the interfaith work we have been involved in. I don't worry about the Hindus and the Buddhists or the Jews. They are walking a pretty paralleled path as mine. They would claim Jesus as a great prophet and teacher. I would say way more about Jesus than that, but I don't have a need for them to believe what I believe, but I can only teach and preach Jesus. I am open that there are other ways. He is mine, though, and I will claim him, and I will keep him, and I will proclaim him forever. I have committed my life to that, and I hope and pray every day that our sons who were each baptized in the third grade and claimed the Jesus path as their own will live into those baptismal commitments for the rest of their lives. I hope that for all who grow in faith at Park Road. For God so loved the world. May it be so. Amen.